Last week, as we continued with our study of the life of Jesus, as Luke gives it to us in his gospel, we looked together at the parable of the sower, famous, famous parable that I'm going to try to synopsize for you now. It's got this idea in it that Luke brought to us by means of this parable. And the idea is that real faith in Jesus shows up in our real lives in real and demonstrable ways. And then the question that's the follow-up to that, I think naturally, is, all right, well, then in what kind of ways? Show me some ways because I want to see them and I want to compare them to me. And Luke anticipates that question as he now continues in this gospel story that he's giving to us, and he does this by illustrating the different ways or some of the different ways that real faith shows up in our real lives in real and demonstrable ways by giving us three stories. And it did not occur to me until literally a few minutes ago as we're all singing what it is that kind of ties these stories together. It was one of these deals where all week I'm working on it, I'm working, I'm praying as I'm driving in this morning, and I'm saying, Lord, I feel like there's one little thing that I'm not seeing. I'm sure there's a hundred, but there's one that I just knew for sure I wasn't seeing. And as we were singing together, he says, it's fear and faith. That's it. It's fear and faith. He's going to illustrate faith for us. He's going to say real faith in real life, real demonstrable ways. You want to see it? I'm going to show it to you, but I'm going to show it to you in opposition to fear. How wonderfully relevant that is. So story number one, Luke comes to us and he gives us this amazing story in which Jesus and his disciples get into the boat on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and then they cruise across to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and somewhere in between they're caught in a great storm, and you know the story, Jesus is asleep And the disciples are full of what? Fear. They are caught in a storm. Jesus himself has commanded them to go to the other side. I mean, presumably he's done that for a reason. Logically, you can back your way out of that and go, you know, guys, Jesus is in the boat. He's commanded you to go to the other side. He's the son of God. So I realize you might be a little nervous, but panic, fear... Well, it's not faith, is it? They stir him, they wake him, and he speaks to them, but more importantly, he speaks to the wind, and he speaks to the waves, and the natural realm obey him. And maybe you're hearing that for the first time or for the 101st time, and you think to yourself, You know, I mean, I'm not going to say this out loud, Tom, but that sounds completely ridiculous to me. And I would agree, it does. It sounds completely ridiculous unless Jesus is who the whole of the Scriptures claim that he is, which is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. If Jesus is God, then you would expect, frankly, that the creator of the natural realm would then also have authority over the natural realm. He can speak to the winds and to the waves, and they can immediately cease, not just die down and slowly the storm passes through. That's not the picture. It's blowing, it's blowing, it's blowing, it's not. It's wavy, it's wavy, it's wavy, it's glass. That's the idea. So you would expect him to be able to do that. And lo and behold, you look at the story and here he does do that. And you say, well, yeah, but why should I believe the story? That's the real question, isn't it? Why? Lots of reasons, but let me give you one. Most of the writers of the New Testament... Most of the sources for the writing of the New Testament as well were in that boat with Jesus when that storm was stilled by Jesus. And I want you to consider how their lives end, because it's not in fear, it's in faith. 
These guys, every single one of them, lost massively in this life defending the narrative of the life of Jesus, including the narrative that includes this story and all of the blaze of miracle that is the presentation of his life and that, frankly, you would expect if indeed he is God. They lost family. They lost business. They lost their investments. They lost their friends. They lost their community. They lost their reputation. And almost every single one of these guys died a horrific and torturous death. Now, would they do that if, in fact, sometime after the death of Christ, they all got together and said, hey, you know what? Let's put together a big fat lie that's going to cost us everything, and then we'll all die a horrific and torturous death. What do you think? Not one of them recanted. And consider that that was what's on the table. Hey, you know what, Peter, here's the deal. Uh, we, the Roman Empire, want to be done with Christianity. We, the Jewish people, would like to be done with Christianity. So here's our offer to you. You can either recant the whole of it, or we're thinking crucifixion upside down. What do you think? Peter's like, where do you want me to lay down so you can drive in the nails? Really? Guys, Jesus stilled the storm. Here's why. Jesus is who the Bible claims that he is. He is God, and he calls us to live in faith and not fear. And so you say, well, where's the faith in this story? What happens in the story? Because the disciples, it seems to me, are both the example of fear and the example of faith, in that faith looks like wonder. Faith looks like amazement. Faith looks like a reverential awe. Faith looks like that old-fashioned, at least from our perspective, fear of the Lord that awakens within us the understanding that this Jesus that we feel free to ignore, that we feel free to criticize, that we engage with, but on our terms only, we don't take very seriously is someone who is not to be trifled with. Faith and fear. So then we come to story number two. Jesus gets to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, the Gentile side, parenthetically, and there's a whole story behind that. But the one then who had already just proved that he is master over the natural realm now proves that he is master over the supernatural realm. And exactly how does he do that? By casting out a legion, a whole host of demons, out of a demonically possessed man. You're like, you know what? That sounds ridiculous. It does, unless he's gone, in which case it kind of just all starts falling into place, doesn't it? And what's the reaction of the people over there? It's fear. They gather together, have a little town meeting, and they come to Jesus and say, look, you freak us out and you need to leave. They send the Lord away in fear. What's the reaction of faith? It's the reaction of the man who's delivered. The delivered man comes to Jesus, offers himself fully in service to the Lord, says, hey, I'd really like to become one of your disciples, sort of like one of these guys. What do you think? And Jesus says, you can be my disciple, but you have a different ministry. You have a different mission. You're not coming back across to the Jewish side with us in this boat. You're going to stay here on the Gentile side, and you yourself are going to become its evangelist. And he does. The next time Jesus goes to the western side, he feeds the 4,000. They only counted the men back then. Sorry, just don't blame me. So how many people were really there? When you add the women, you add the children, he feeds all of those people back on the western side. I'm thinking that guy was a pretty effective evangelist. So you have fear that sends him away. You have faith that takes your own story of deliverance, and you can't contain that. 
You've got to share that. Incidentally, nobody can really argue with that. So then we come to story number three. It's the third and and climactic story. It's the one I really want to drill down on today. It, too, gives us an example, I think, of fear and faith and fear and faith again as we work our way through it. But it also is one in which it talks to us about the posture, the posture of our heart toward the Lord. And the posture of the heart is seen very artistically, I think, in this story. It's found in the posture of the bodies of the characters in this story. How do they come to the Lord? In what physical posture? Because it's emblematic of their heart. And Luke juxtaposes some different people here too. He's got fear and faith working. We'll see that. But but there's a man named Jairus. We'll meet him in a second. And there is a woman in need of healing and we'll meet her. We'll put them over here. And then I want you to take the crowd. And there are a few crowds actually. I want you to take the crowds and I want you to put them over here. And I'm going to give you a clue going into the story. Faith looks a whole lot more like Jairus and the woman than either of the crowds. So story begins, story number three begins in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40, where Luke says this. He says, now when Jesus returned from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, the crowd back on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, welcomed him back, for they were all waiting for him. But the question is, why were they all waiting for him? And I'll skip to the chase. They were waiting for him for selfish, self-centered reasons. So some were hungry, maybe, and they knew that he could multiply food, so they were waiting for him. Some were sick. They knew that he could heal, so they were waiting for him. Some needed wisdom or direction to help them have a better life, and they figured he's a wise guy, and indeed he is, and maybe that would be helpful to them, and so they waited for him. Some were bored, and they heard about Jesus, and so they just came out to satisfy their own curiosity, their own curiosity. They're waiting for him for reasons related to themselves. They're not waiting to give themselves to him. It's different. Jesus, what can you do for me? I'd like to have that. I'll take whatever I can get. Now I'm going to go home. That's the opposite of what we see. And so the crowd who represents what we ought not to be, well, the crowd stands around Jesus and bustles around Jesus and hustles around Jesus and bumps into Jesus. They physically touch Jesus. They experience none of his power. They even inhibit his movement, as we'll see next. And so then in contrast to that, Luke gives us Jairus in verse 41. We read, and there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. So that's a description of him. It means that he was a wealthy man. It means that he was a well-educated man. It means that he was a man of status and prestige in that city and in that society. He was in all likelihood a member of the religious and political establishment of of the Jews that stood opposed to Jesus in that day. He oversaw the synagogue and and the reading of the law and the the teaching of the commandments and so forth. He's a well-known guy, and now notice what he does. This ruler of the synagogue named Jairus comes to Jesus, and it says, and falling at his feet. Do you see his posture? And notice that he does it publicly. He doesn't send a servant, you know, with a note to Jesus, hey, Jesus, will you come to my house? And then Jesus comes to his house, and then he sends out all of his family members, and he closes all the drapes so nobody can see what happens next. And then he falls on his face before the Lord because, you know, he doesn't want anyone to know that this is what he's done. This guy, who's known by everyone, fights his way through the crowd and publicly collapses at the feet of Jesus, a sign in that culture, and for that matter, in ours, of total submission, of total surrender. Lord, I give it to you, everything, me, myself, my family, my daughter, which is what's driven him to this brokenness. 
for he falls at the feet of the Lord. And then it says that he begged Jesus. He implored Jesus to come to his house. And here's why, because he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. And that doesn't mean that she was, you know, likely to die in the next couple of days. And he was hoping to set up some kind of an appointment whereby Jesus could swing by in the next 48 hours or so and hopefully save her. That's not it. She's dying right now when he comes to the Lord. In a second, we'll see that they had already gathered up the mourners. And in those days and in that culture, they would hire people to come and mourn for their dead. Well, the mourners have already arrived at the house. They're waiting for the girl to be proclaimed dead. It's going, it's imminent. It's going to happen now is the idea. There is an urgency to this story that you have to understand if you're going to see the opposite of fear. And you'll see it in this man's life. He begs Jesus to come to his house because he has a daughter, 12 years of age, and she's dying. And guess what? His money can't fix that. His education can't fix that. His status can't fix that. None of his connections can fix that. But he believes that that the Lord can fix that. And so he doesn't come standing and bustling and hustling and bumping and all that kind of business demanding and presuming and merely come to take. He comes and he lays himself completely at the feet of Jesus in a sign of total submission. Here I am, all of me, it's in your hands. And he does indeed place all of this in the hands of the Lord, even the life of his daughter, which is hanging by a thread. And we'll see that. And so then we read that, well, Jesus went to his house. And as he went to the house of Jairus, what does the crowd do? They're pressing in against him. And as if that's not inhibiting enough, they're slowing him down. You see, they're kind of standing in his way as they're presented in the story, as if that's not inhibiting enough because he's got to get to the house of Jairus, or does he? As if that's not enough. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, a 12-year-old girl and 12 years of suffering. It's one story. And so for 12 years, she's had this chronic discharge of blood, which, you know, might be more information that you're looking for, but it it matters. It really, it matters. The condition is very significant. It is a chronic condition that involves bleeding, which is not only devastating for her physically, but it's devastating for her religiously and socially. That condition under the law of Moses created for her a perpetual state of impurity, a state of impurity from which she could not be made pure by some ritual or anything else. And her impurity was contagious. So here's what that means. If she touched something and you touched that something, now you've got it. Now you, unlike her, because you don't have a chronic condition, can go through a, you know, a ritual that can then ritualistically cleanse you, but you kind of get the point. So she touches something you touch, now you have it. If she touches you, oh, now you definitely have it. If you touch her, advertently or inadvertently, knowingly or unknowingly, which matters as this story plays out, you've got it. So what does this mean practically for her? It means she's cut off, barred from the temple in Jerusalem, barred from the synagogue over which Jairus is the ruler, and barred from people. So if she's married, when she develops this, she's not married anymore. She had children when she develops this. She hasn't touched them, tucked them in, hugged them, fed them, cared for them, wiped their tears, attended any event in their life. Just keep going down the list. For 12 years and counting, her mom and dad 
I mean, maybe they leave food for her at sort of a designated drop-off spot, you know, so that she can stay alive, because as we'll see in a minute, she doesn't have any money anymore. So somehow she's subsisting. She's eking out an existence, but she doesn't show up for Thanksgiving. She can't be embraced by them or anyone else. It is absolutely a devastating situation for this woman. And then we read that even though she had spent all of her living, whatever resources she had on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And you can only imagine the kinds of indignities that she willingly subjected herself to by submitting to the, by our standards, very primitive practices of this bevy of physicians in her day. But, as it turns out, she has now heard about another physician. And his name is Jesus, and he charges no fee. And she's heard about his miraculous powers. But I think there's one story in particular that she's heard about, and this, I think, is what ignites her faith and causes her to overcome her fear by forcing her way through this crowd here in a second to come to Jesus. She's heard the story, I think, of how Jesus healed the leper. And the leprosy was a condition very much like this, at least in the sense that it was a chronic condition, incurable in that day. It created a perpetual and contagious state of impurity. Does that sound familiar? And how did Jesus heal the leper? Because I'm sure it was almost as famous as the fact that he healed the leper. He touched him. So what does she surmise? What does her faith say to her then about Jesus? She heals that story and she surmises that the purity of Jesus is more contagious than the impurity of sickness and of sin. So if the touch of Jesus can heal the leper, then there's hope for her. In fact, she goes as far as to believe that if she touched even as much as his clothing that she then could be healed. And so believing that, we read in verse 44 that she worms her way secretly, privately, hoping not to be discovered, probably with some kind of a scarf over her head and face and nobody would realize who it is that's contagiously rubbing up against them as she worms her way through the crowd to Jesus. And she comes up behind Jesus, it says, and touches the fringe of his garment, at which point, again, she's probably like one of a hundred people who have touched Jesus thus far in this story. but she's one of two people who approach him on her face. And here's why I say that. Where is the fringe of his garment? It's at the level of his feet. Different posture. Different kind of a approach. And what happens? Immediately her discharge of blood was, was ceased. And you say, well, then does that mean that if I fall at the feet of Jesus, he is automatically obligated to heal me? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that it will differentiate you massively from the crowd. The crowd come into the presence of Jesus. The crowd do whatever it takes to kind of get around Jesus. The crowd come only also to take from Jesus. The crowd does not experience the power of Jesus. This woman does, and in her case, it heals her. And in our case, sometimes it heals us, and sometimes it empowers us to persevere even though we're not healed. And I would ask you, which is the more powerful dispensation by Christ, persevering power or healing power? 
So anyway, this woman who's just infected half the crowd and who has, in her mind at least, stolen a healing from the Lord, apparently, it seems, just wants to sneak away now and go home, and Jesus is not going to allow that. So then we read in verse 45, and Jesus stops, that's the idea, and he looks around at this crowd, and now remember, Jairus' daughter's life is hanging in the balance. So a little bit of urgency going on here. Jesus nevertheless stops, he looks around, and he says something that to Peter sounds completely ridiculous. He says, who was it that touched me, and now notice this, when all of the people in the crowd denied it, even though probably half of them had in fact bumped into him at some point, so now why are they denying that? Fear. Well, what is Jesus going to do? How is Jesus going to react? One of the things I read in one of the commentaries I looked at this week is that no self-respecting teacher would allow himself to be jostled like this by a crowd. And why is that exactly? Because you never know who's in that crowd. And you might become ritualistically unclean. Jesus has no such fear. The power of his purity again and again and again and again overwhelms impurity of any kind. So the crowd in fear deny that they've touched him, even though now listen to what Peter says. Peter grows impatient with Jesus, and, you know, it's just so great that the Lord has Peter to think through these things for him, I guess. I don't know what he'd do without him. I'm sure he wondered himself. He says, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Translation, Jesus, half the people here have touched you, okay? (laughs) Like, how can you even ask this question? But Jesus, who also happens to be the Son of God, who's proven again and again that He knows the hearts of all of us and of all of them, knows who has touched Him. And He's giving her an opportunity here to differentiate herself from the crowd and how? By exercising fear, I mean faith rather, over fear. That's how. And so He calls her out publicly He's saying, in some sense, I want you to do what Jairus just did. By saying, someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me, which creates kind of a drumroll moment for this woman, but not just for her. Let's not forget about Jairus. I mean, Jairus has got to be freaking out. You know, the mourners were at his house when he left to come get Jesus. He's got to be going, good grief, we got to go. I thought about this, you know, Carter was talking about how you enter into the story and imagine what you would do. You know, patience is unfortunately not one of the things that I'm well acquainted with, and I I fear that if my child's life was hanging in the balance, I can be a little bit overly direct at times. I think I'd just say, Lord, you know, here's the deal. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. (laughs) But whatever way you choose right now, we're going. I mean, I'm tougher than I look. So you're going over the shoulder. We're going to save the life of my kid. The clock is ticking. Some point, well, at some point it's too late, isn't it? No, (laughs) actually, it's not. That's fear, isn't it? Well acquainted with that too. Jairus is quite a guy. Jairus, it seems to me, shows a greater faith than Peter. Jairus, I mean, there's no mention of Jairus saying or doing anything. 
Jairus has fallen at the feet of the Lord. He's placed his daughter into the Lord's hands, and he waits patiently, it seems at least, while this woman decides what she's going to do. Faith or fear. And it's a scary idea to come forth for her. I mean, first of all, how is this crowd going to react when she comes forth? And then identifies the fact that she's infected half of them and and none of them know which half. And does that in front of the synagogue ruler, Jairus, who's trying to get Jesus as fast as he can to his house because his daughter's life is ebbing away. Not a popular move. But far more significantly, you know, she doesn't know really how the Lord is going to react. I mean, she has ventured his purity by sneaking up and touching him. Now, she did that in faith, and it was a faith that was rewarded, as we'll see. She did it in faith, believing his purity was stronger than her impurity, and she was right. But she stole a healing. And might he not undo that healing? He certainly could. So what is she venturing? Good grief, 12 years of this, I've just been healed. If I keep my mouth shut and go home, it's all good. If I come forward, which I'm scared to death to do, well, the crowd's going to hate me, and I might end up right back where I began. So there's fear and faith. She's a heroic figure. Verse 47, Luke says, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden from Jesus, there you go. He knew who she was. He's waiting for her to respond. She came forward. Now she comes forward trembling. You can relate to that, can't you? But relate to the Jesus that she comes forward trembling too in light of now what he does. She comes forward trembling and falling down before Jesus, declared in the presence of all of the people why she had touched him. She comes out publicly with her whole story and how she had been immediately healed. And now notice what Jesus says to her, because this really is the completion of her healing. She's been healed physically, but not socially, not religiously. She needs not only to be made clean by being healed, but then officially declared clean before she can tuck her kids in bed at night, before she can re-enter into society. She's a pariah until then. And Jesus says to her, and he uses the most intimate language that he could choose. He says, daughter, he uses the language of family. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Are you afraid of that, Jesus? I think we ought not to be. While Jesus was still speaking to this woman, here we come, and you knew it was coming, didn't you? Someone from Jairus' house came to Jairus and said to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore, the teacher. But Jesus isn't just a teacher. Jesus is the one who commands the winds and the waves. He's the one who commands forces that are seen and unseen. And as we're now going to see, he's the one who commands life and death as well. He's the author of life. So what comes next is really not ridiculous, and neither should it be surprising. And so we read that on hearing this, 
Jesus answered Jairus, and here's what he says, do not what? Fear. Only, what's the opposite of fear? Believe. It's faith. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And she will. For then we read, and when Jesus came to the house, meaning Jairus' house, he allowed no one to enter in with him except for Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child, and all, of, and all, meaning all of the professional mourners that they had hired in those days to weep and wail for their dead, were already there, as I said, weeping and wailing and mourning for her. But Jesus said to those people who were experts in death, it's their profession, he says, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And that's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, she is actually in this moment dead. But what is the Lord saying? He's saying, death for you is death. It's something to mourn. Weep and wail. But death for me is like sleep. I can, I can wake you up from that. I have power over even this. And so we weep when we bury our dead, but we weep in hope if they had faith in the one who has life or power over life and over death. And so then he says to these folks, do not weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. And what do they do? They laugh at him and they say, that's ridiculous. Knowing that she was dead and not believing that he is God. But Jairus keeps believing. This man has a persevering faith in the face of a lot of scary circumstances. And so what does he do? He takes Jesus into the presence of his dead child. And now consider this. There's nothing in Israel more defiled and impure than a corpse. And that's what she is at this point. And what does Jesus do? He touches her. Taking her by the hand, Jesus called, saying, Child, and it's the language of resurrection, guys, arise. And what happened next? Because it had to happen. It must necessarily happen. The one who commands life and death has said it. Therefore, her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And it's not ridiculous, because Jesus is God. So, then what's the example of faith that we see in that story? Because we've already seen in story number one that, you know what, it shows up in wonder and amazement and reverential awe at the true identity of Jesus, and it's the opposite of, I am freaking out. <laughs> Are you freaking out? You belong to the Lord Christ. You believe that He is with you every bit as much as He was actually with them, because by His Spirit, He lives in you. And when was the last time you stood in awe of Him, really, and who He really is? And then we saw story number two, that real faith shows up in a desire and a willingness to serve Jesus by making Him known to anyone who would listen. That's what the demoniac did. Now, what was the example of fear? <laughs> it was the opposite of that. I don't want Jesus to interfere with my life. I don't want Jesus to call me into service. Good grief, I don't want to tell anybody about the Lord. It scares me to death. It scares me to death. It's fear. 
He's not calling you to that. He's calling us to faith. When was the last time that you talked about Christ with somebody who didn't already know him? All right, well, then that leaves us with story number three, the great climactic one, the one that deals with how we approach to Jesus and gives us these offsetting examples, Jairus and the woman and the crowd of people. The crowd comes standing, it comes bustling, it comes hustling around Jesus, it comes bumping into Jesus, it comes into the presence of Jesus, it comes into contact with Jesus, it does all kinds of things to put itself around Jesus and experiences exactly none of his power, none, zero, zip, because it comes to take, it doesn't come to lay down on, it, on its face before him and to say, you know what, in light of who you are, in light of what you've done, in light of my great need, here I am. What do you want to do with me? That's what Jairus and the woman do. They come face down, surrendering everything to Jesus and placing themselves and everything that then happens next in their life. Jairus's daughter is dying. He's like waiting for Jesus to finish his altar call. I'm like, get on my shoulder, we're going. Whatever happens next, into his hands. And those are the ones who experience his power and leave transformed. So it seems like the bottom line from story number one is that, or story number three rather, is that, you know, the group wants Jesus to surrender to them. And Jairus and the woman surrender themselves wholly and unreservedly to him. And the question, obviously, is which one are you? You like the crowd or you like Jairus and the woman? Oh, and what's governing your life? How do you operate? Is it faith or is it fear? So consider that as we prepare our hearts for the table. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful, uh, Lord, for our Savior. We are thankful for this amazing word that your Spirit has inspired, that your Spirit has preserved, that your Spirit illuminates and teaches to our hearts, that He comforts us with, that He challenges us with, that He moves us with, that He shapes us with, a word that has largely been written in the blood of the people who wrote it, who believed it so much that they suffered so much in its defense, and who loved Jesus so much that they willingly did so for the joy of heaven set before them and before us through faith in him. So Lord, as we come to your table, I pray that you would do business with us now, that you would point out those places in our lives where we're operating out of fear and not faith, and that you would make really clear to us as you speak to our hearts and minds of what faith looks like and then challenge us in that area and enable us, give us the faith we need to overcome our fears, Lord. We need even for you to do that. Lord, speak to us about who you are, one not to be trifled with, but stood in awe of. Lord, speak to us about the privilege of laying down our lives for you and speaking to others about you, telling the story of our deliverance, if indeed we have been delivered. And God, make us people who willingly give ourselves to you and who stop coming to you only to take. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, we do have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table this morning. And um, on the table, we find physically the emblems of all that He's given and of all that is completely sufficient for us. And so we have the emblems of His body broken and of His, of his blood that is poured out. And we're commanded as the people of God to come to this table. It's the table of the Lord, not the table of this church. If you are a believer in Christ, then this is a table for you. If you're not a believer in Christ, then consider Jesus. Come talk to us after the service. Come speak with our prayer team. Let's discuss it a little bit further. But don't come to the table, but take the time to to work through what the Lord is offering to you in this table. However... If you're a believer in the Lord, then by all means, this table is for you. But do business with God before you come to the table. It calls us to examine our faith and the sincerity of it, its weaknesses, its deficiencies, all of these ways that we're fearful, and that's how we we operate. And those are hard things to break out of, to confess those things to Him. And then in coming to the table, to meet spiritually with the one who has given His body and His blood to deliver you from that stuff and by His body and blood have completely forgiven and made you whole. So receive from the table and be relieved at the table and experience the joy of the gospel here. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, as we will do now, and drink this cup, as we will do now, you proclaim the Lord's death, but you do it as one who's looking forward, you see, until he returns. That's the idea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of our Savior that we find in this meal, that at the expense of his infinitely valuable life, he is laid before us this morning. We pray, Lord, that it is that Savior that we come to as we walk forward, having first examined ourselves and confessed our sin. We pray that it's our Savior that we meet here at this table, that we feel his washing and his cleansing, is relief from our sin and and from our shame and from our guilt. and Lord, that we would know that and that we would be filled with His joy. Do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.